Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Ezra Klein Show. This is a great episode. Kara Swisher is here. She is the founder of Recode. She is the host of the awesome podcast Recode Decode. She is herself one of, if not the best interviewer in the game. And she drops a ton of wisdom in this discussion. I do this at least somewhat professionally, and I learned an enormous amount. Kara is actually one of the people who, before I began this podcast, I went to for advice. We talk about that advice, which I have thought about a lot since. She really, in this discussion, I think gives a masterclass in reporting, in interviewing, in thinking about media, thinking about the business side of media, too. And she also is just a badass storyteller. The story she tells in here from being part of a sexual harassment claim against John McLaughlin to why she left D.C. to what she told President Obama before interviewing him so she could maximize her time. It is just great. It's a great conversation. I enjoyed it tremendously. I really think you will too. And I, I think you'll learn a lot. I definitely learned a lot. As always, a couple quick requests. Please share the show on social media, on email. Tell your friends. It is how we grow. It is always much appreciated. Please rate us on iTunes. I always enjoy reading those. Number two, check out my other podcast, The Weeds, with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. We are going deep into policy, and right now there is a ton of policy to go deep into, so you will want to be checking that out. And finally, as always, please send your guest ideas to me at Ezra Klein Show at box.com. A quick request there, something I'm always trying to do on this show and have not always done as good a job of as I should have, is make sure we have a diverse guest list uh, across a lot of dimensions, but particularly on, on gender and race. I, I care about that a lot. One thing that I notice sometimes is that the suggestions I get are, are overwhelmingly white men. Nothing wrong with that. I am a white man. But if there are more diverse folks you'd like to see on the show, please send me the ideas. I really do want to have people you want to hear from on the program. So I, I take the intersection of those two things seriously. And I am always very interested to know who is interesting to you. That said, without further ado, here's Kara Swisher. Kara Swisher, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ezra Klein. So I had not realized that you went to Georgetown. Yes. Uh, School of Foreign Service. Did you grow up in the area? No. Where did you grow up? Well, lots of places. Long Island, Roslyn Harbor, 
and then Princeton, New Jersey, principally after fifth grade. And how do you end up in D.C.? Oh, it's a long story, Ezra. I'm super old. Do you really want to hear that? <laughs> I really want to hear it. I grew up in Princeton mostly. I, I was born in Philadelphia. I, I moved to Long Island when my dad died when I was five. And so we stayed there for a short time and then moved to Princeton after he died, and my mom remarried. And so I, I grew up there pretty much. I went to high school, middle school, high school there at a private school there called Princeton Day School. And then I went to Georgetown for college. I, I did a bad job on college applications. I actually was a very good student, and I was the yearbook editor and stuff like that. But I didn't t- take much time on college applications, and I thought I'd get in everywhere, and I didn't. Uh-huh. Um, and Georgetown was my fallback. At the time, Georgetown was a fallback school. Um, I didn't get into Stanford, which is where I wanted to go. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, my brother went there. Did you have any—was that at all at that point because of Stanford's— Tech associations or was that No, not a thing I just then? wanted to go. My brother was there and okay. I, I went there and we had a great party. I, I, you know, something <laughs> like that. And so I thought it was beautiful. And so I didn't get in there and I got into Georgetown. And Foreign Service School is a great school. I yeah. mean, now it, and the minute I got there, Patrick Ewing won, was a big basketball star. And then Georgetown became the it school for a long time. So yeah. when you were there, and, mm-hmm. and I had found this when I was, I'm excited to talk about your mayoral ambitions, mm-hmm. but what right. I hadn't known was that in college, you wanted to go into government. Yeah. And and I read that you said somewhere that you wanted to be in the CIA, yeah. serve in the military, but mm-hmm. it was prevented at the time because of laws against gays Yeah, in the I very much. My dad was in the military. He what went he through school. He, he, he was poor and from West Virginia, not poor, but not rich. And so they put him through college and medical school, came from a, you know, not a working class, but not, not people with money. And I always had great regard for the military. I did a great things for my dad. I have a lot of relatives in the military. And I always wanted to serve, but I was gay. And at the time, I don't think Don't Ask, Don't Tell was in at the time. Whatever horrible, idiotic fucking rule they had, I was subject to it. And so every time I wanted to go into the military, it wasn't possible. And Don't Ask, Don't Tell was so offensive to me that I couldn't do it. I couldn't. I wanted to tell. Like, I wanted them to ask and I wanted to tell. And later, when I, when they took it all off, I was too old. I was going to join the reserves, but I was too old. What did you want to do in the CIA? Oh, what is the well, alternative version of your life? Okay, the alternative version, I'm a, a, an analyst in the CIA working for, you know, a, a, an intelligence officer being insulted by Donald Trump right now and plotting against him, I guess. I don't know. Like a version of Homeland. I Kind of like Claire Danes on Homeland without the bipolar part. Do you watch that show? I love that I show. I do uh, yeah. a little bit. Um, I'm not caught up. But. Yeah. So it's great. It's a great show. I wanted to you be You know the analyst. great story with that show? Hmm. <laughs> the guy who plays, I'm blanking out on, on the name, but the, the sort of double agent character mm-hmm. gave President Obama a package of the DVDs that just said, from one secret Muslim to another. Oh. <laughs> which I thought was a pretty good inscription. That's the guy on Billions now, right? Now you're beyond Yeah. Me. The guy, he's on, he's fantastic. I forget his name. He's um, he's amazing actor now on this great show called Billions, which I love too. So I wanted to be, you know, a lot of people at the Foreign Service School go into the State Department. It's kind of a, it's one of those feeder schools. A lot of people immediately go off into State Department postings. But I was always interested in the CIA. I studied propaganda. I was particularly interested in. I studied Nazi propaganda, Chinese propaganda, the uses of propaganda, and so I was always very interested in communications around how governments communicate, and so. I wanted to wanted to be an analyst, essentially. You Did you know. have a region that you wanted to specialize in? Um, I was very interested in communism. I mean, I was very interested in Cuba and Germany at the time. Germany was East Germany and West mm-hmm. Germany, Russia. So I was I took German. I was very fascinated with the Cold War. 
at the time. Can you speak German? Uh, badly. I was just in Germany this week. I understand it pretty well. Um, I barely passed my proficiency exam at Georgetown. I don't know why I took German. I was late for the Spanish exam or something like that. But, you know, I wasn't going to go into an Arab country because of being gay. I think at the time it was a bigger issue. And at the time it was an issue. There was all these things going on with Clayton Lone Tree. You don't remember this, this Marine who had a who had sex in a, in a vault full of secrets. Or it was, there was all this stuff around leakage at all these places at, at, at a lot of embassies and everything. And so there was a real problem being gay. And, you know, you would have to go through these FBI investigations when you had these jobs. And they were always brought up. What if people found out? We, we discussed it at school. Like, what if people found out you were gay? And I said, I'm out. So, well, what if they blackmailed you? I'm like, how can you blackmail some? What if they told your mother? I'm like, my mother. You know, it just went on and on and on. And so it there were issues around being gay and working even at the State Department out. It, it, there was issues being out, period in general, in this country. And people do not remember that. And I do very vividly. At Georgetown, it was a problem. It was, you know, I was closeted for a, much longer than I wanted to be. When, it, I guess if you're comfortable talking about this, yeah. like when did you know and when did you come four, out? Four, when I was four. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I knew very quickly. I had boyfriends. I don't I think had... I knew I had genitals when I was four. <laughs> I did. I knew I had genitals. Yes, you did. Trust me, I have two sons. They know they have <laughs> genitals. I knew when I was very early on, very early on, and I was not unhappy about it. I was actually pretty happy about the concept. And I um, had crushes on women, but I had boyfriends. I had a boyfriend in high school I liked very much. I had several, lots of boyfriends, actually. I was a really good girlfriend because I wasn't clingy and I didn't, <laughs> I had sex with them. So <laughs> I used to say, used to be like, oh, you'll, I didn't, sex wasn't an issue for me. So I really was an excellent girlfriend. I really was. I was not like, do you like me? I didn't care. Like, you know, <laughs> oh, I don't care if you like me. The ideal girlfriend is a lesbian from straight men. I, I liked Men, I liked them a lot. And, I, I, and then in college is when I started. I really, I really had the first relationships. And, and when you say that it was hard at Georgetown, mm-hmm. in what ways was it, was it difficult? It wasn't just Georgetown. The... It's everybody. Like mm-hmm. when you're gay, everybody, you know, when you're black or Jewish or something else, your parents understand, your community understands, they've themselves been subject to it. When you're gay, often your parents are against you. And my mother certainly was. Initially, it took a long time for her to come around. And your friends, it was hard telling your friends. It was a big – now today it seems so ridiculous. It just does. But it's very painful, the big reveal that you had to tell people and it was agonizing. And I lost several friends over it at the time. So I, I, I don't know. I remember one person said, I don't know if I understand. And I was like, fuck you. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what do you mean? Like, it's not something that you need to understand. It's so. amazing the ricochet in attitudes around this. Oh, it's um, When astonishing. I was in high school <laughs> – it was, as you say, just a much, much, much bigger deal. And I'm not saying it's not a big oh, deal Oh, no, people there's people now. suffering all over this country. There are people suffering And, and right the now. world, for goodness sake. But even just in the 10 years, you know, yeah. when I when I go and talk to young like, kids today, it just, it's spoken well, everybody's of with an gay openness. Now. Everybody's gay. Like, I wish I was young now because, like, you know, there's so much fungibility around sexuality now. Yeah. Almost too much. It's weird. It's an int- I do think people are more gay than not gay, you know, or, or straight. I think most people do have a selection, even though I, I, people are going to be mad at me for saying that. But I th- but, and there's lots of people who sort of live in the now there is it's he, she, they. There's all these really interesting mm-hmm. gender identities. Zay. So Zay, there's Zay. Uh, well, they is the one big one right now. I like Zay, but uh, they is hard when you're talking to someone. Um, but it's 
I think this is all great. All the strictures around sexuality are so strange. I live in San Francisco, so, you know, it's required that you date a goat at one point in your, in your career there. And you're, uh, you mean the greatest of all time? Yeah, exactly. It was very, I, you don't remember, but, I, you know, it's just remembering because I was down on the mall near the mall yesterday. I came in, I was in Germany, then I was in New York, and then I came to, uh, came here very late at Union Station. We drove past the mall, and I, I had a, a flash of going to the AIDS quilt thing. I was one of the people that folded the AIDS quilt. It was so beautiful. You'd get up in the morning and then you'd lift it in this beautiful flag-like way. And it was an agonizing time. It was, you know, the AIDS was happening. I think that's when everything sort of blew up. I was here in Washington during that Reagan administration period. So to stay in, the, in your Washington mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. you worked for John McLaughlin. Oh, yeah. After and college. you ghost wrote for him? Yes. Do you have that right? Yes. And then you testified against him at a sexual harassment I did. trial. I did. I did. But it never went to trial. It, it went, never went it, to it trial. It settled. It settled. After college, I went to Georgetown. And then I during college, I worked for the Washington Post. And there's, I'm not going to retell, but there's a famous story of me getting a job at the Washington Post by well, you yelling. you called up the city desk editor. Yeah, Larry Kramer. Larry Kramer, who then became publisher of USA uh, Today. Right? Well, stop on that for a minute. Right. Let's retell it. Right. Right. I think right. I had this out of, out of mm-hmm. order. Have you always had the personality where you felt comfortable doing something like that? Yes. Obnoxious? Yes. Yes, yes, <laughs> Confident. Yes. Confident. Yeah, okay. Obnoxious is what I mean. So they wrote a story that was about an event that happened at Georgetown, Yes, that I right? covered, too. I think I, it was a speech. It was—I don't remember the speech, but it annoyed me because it was had so many errors, and I loved the Washington Post. I read it. And, you know, I was I was at college during the time when they had the um, that horrible thing. What's her name? The woman who lied about that whole story. Oh, do I have the name right? Is it Janet Cook? Janet Cook. Right? I was—I read that whole series when I was at college. I read the Washington Post. This is cover the, to cover. Um, the woman the who lied, a crack, the crack yeah. boy, the crack boy yeah. who, who, who was, that <laughs> was a hell de- of a freaking story. My favorite story. detail about that story, mm-hmm. Mayor Marion Barry came out and said, we have found the kid and yeah. he's in protective yes, custody right, that's now. Right. The whole thing was an astonishing story. Yeah. I read that. I was here. I, I love the Washington I read the Washington Post cover to cover when I was here. I love the newspaper. I love Brent Bradley. I hadn't been in newspapers in high school. I was a yearbook editor, but not newspapers, which is interesting. But in college, I started writing for the Hoya. And mm-hmm. did really well there doing it. My freshman year, I won the journalism award that was reserved for seniors. So I was like, real, I was good. I was really good right from the bat, off the bat. I did a columns and things like that. And so I called them after I had written the story, and I was mad. And I somehow got him. I don't know how I got the city editor. I didn't mean to get him. And I was complaining. And he's like, you think you could do better? And I said, yeah, I could easily. With sleeping, I could do better. And so he said, come down here to uh, 15th Street and tell me that to my face. I said, no problem. And I got on the bus. I think it was a G2 from Georgetown for right from 35th and O and went down and he hired me and, as a stringer. And so this was what year in college for you? 82 or 3. And so what kinds of stories did you write for him? Oh, I worked for the District Weekly, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of a weird little thing. It was an odd little strange part of the paper. I'm glad they got rid of it. But it was cute, adorable stories of D.C. And so I wrote about students. I wrote about the student, the corp, which was the student business. I wrote about one of my better stories was the fight between students and Georgetown residents because they would wreck houses next to very mm-hmm. – Georgetown's prices were going up quite significantly. So I wrote about real estate and the fighting between the townies and the in, – in this case, the townies are richer than the students. And I wrote that story. I, lots of them, tons and tons. And I wrote about the – they started a bank at Georgetown Student Startup Bank. I wrote about that. Um, I have those clips somewhere somewhere in my pile. But you didn't go right to the post after college. No, no, I didn't. But I, I was there a lot. There was a woman there who I worked for who was just lovely. She was so encouraging. And then I used those clips to get into Columbia. 
I got into Columbia Journalism School. Oh, interesting. And I went there for a year. Why um, do you think you needed to go to journalism school? I don't school? know. It was a waste. I should have taken that money and put it into Do Apple you advise stock. people no, now no, to go to journalism absolutely school? Absolutely not. No. 100% no. Why? It's a waste of time. I had a great time. I wrote a really great – my thesis. It's only a year program and you do your, your project. I, um, I did it on homeless – hotels that kids stayed at. They would put people in hotels, but they kept them there for long periods of time as opposed to transitional housing. And I did a piece of, and I also had a photographer with me and we did this amazing piece about how these kids had to go to weird schools. And it was sort of, it was the beginning of the real homeless crisis in our country. So let's say I'm a freshman in mm-hmm. college and I want to be a journalist. Yeah. What, what are your couple of pieces of advice? Start writing immediately. In what? A blog? Everything. In a whatever, newspaper? Whatever appeals to you. I don't know what your interest is. If you like music, write about music. Write about write and, and practice all the different social media, video, audio, whatever that's interests you. Do you think that's actually a good idea? So I, mm-hmm. I've, I struggle with this. My mm-hmm. sense, talking to kids who are, who are going into journalism, is that what they are being told right now mm-hmm. is to spend a tremendous amount of time learning how to do a little bit of everything, mm-hmm. learning how to do a little bit of video, learning how to do a little bit of being a presence on Twitter, mm-hmm. Twitter, learning how to do a little bit of writing. And I wonder if it wouldn't be better just to go really deep into one Could thing be. and be good at Because I don't know. You when, can't not be, though. How can you not be? I mean, you have to be good at all these things. Do you? Yeah. I don't know because we uh, I can't speak I'm good for you at guys all of them. Well, you are. Yeah. Um, so. But when we hire writers, it's like we don't ask them if they can do video. Um, I think you have to have some. You you don't have to do video, but I think you, you should understand it. I think you mm-hmm. should really understand. I think it's impossible not to understand all the different media at this point. I do think one thing that's missing is the mentorship. I had amazing mentorship at the Washington Post, mm-hmm. um, and I had these great editors. Every moment of my life there, I had great mentors, and that is lost. We do that a lot at Recode. A lot of our people in the New York Times tries to steal. And I'm thinking, why can't they mentor people into good? Jo- you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we're the mentors for people they try to steal from us. Those organizations, I had great, the first time I really, I had great managers before. Mm-hmm. My first boss in journalism, Michael mm-hmm. Damaski, was great. But I didn't have a really great editor relationship well, yeah, until I think things the had Washington changed. Post. Washington Post, yeah. They had yeah. a real tradition of that. I worked Still in, does. Yeah, and it was great. It was really important. I think people don't, there was a great story by a woman who worked for Gawker, and she was talking about how she could do anything she wanted at Gawker, and that was a problem. Mm-hmm. And that she, when she worked in publishing, she had so much mentorship, and maybe that was what was missing. And I do think, I think that has been lost uh, quite severely in the profession. And so people just they're kind of raised by wolves at this point. I think there's a time dimension to it. Yeah, when these organizations were bigger, when the output pressure mm-hmm. was a little bit less, yeah. there was time yeah. for training. Yeah. Because I came up through blogging and yeah. then was – until I was at the Washington Post, I was at the American Prospect, which mm-hmm. is very small. Mm-hmm. You know, I think my most important mentor in journalism was a peer. It was Matt Iglesias. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was reasonably well-established as a, as a journalist that I was even in a place where somebody had the time to spend that right. much right. effort on my right. copy right. or right. on my story ideas. Right. It's hard. It's a difficult thing. And I think one of the things is also that there's sort of an attitude of instant – like I want to do this instant. I have issues with some of – our younger reporters, because they want to do, they want the, they want the show right away, and so you sort of are like, do you really want that? Because you're not going to do it very well, you know what I mean? And so it, some of them are hugely talented immediately, but mm-hmm. I think most of them could use, you know, sourcing advice, how to do stories, how to structure things, and and we try really hard at Recode to do. We're, we're going to jump around here, but because mm-hmm. I want to come back to McLaughlin in a minute, but mm-hmm. sourcing actually speaks to something I want to ask you about. You had a great line in a profile written about you a couple of years ago yeah, that you're a big advocate of being in touch with people when yes. you're not writing a story Absolutely. About I do it all the time. I'd love time. to hear you talk about that because that's actually something I yeah. have found is very unintuitive to mm-hmm. 
a lot of young reporters. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was just <laughs> like yesterday when Zuckerberg was on the stand, you know, there were some remarks about Mark Andreessen that were horrible. Like, when he was what? Mar- Mark Zuckerberg was on the stand about the Oculus thing. Oh, I I'll give a you a good example. The lawsuit. Yeah. And there were some things said about Mark Andreessen that are kind of insulting, like, oh, the VC from Silicon Valley, because he there was some text going on between them that were in, introduced into the trial. And so I immediately text him. I said, they're talking bad things about you in Texas. And he goes, what are they saying? And I said, you're pond scum. And that was it. That was the whole encounter. You know what I mean? And and so I, I like— <laughs> You must I have that. really enjoyed that. Yeah, no, but, he, you know, he did. Like, I'm like, I do that a lot. Like, I was—I texted Jeff Weiner about something, not about his work. I'm interested in— you know what he's doing, but I I tend to text people if I see something interesting, I'll text any of them. I text a lot, or I'll send them notes, or or if I see a story, I saw a story this morning and I sent it to, I think Ann Wojcicki, who I cover twenty three mm-hmm. and Me sometimes because A Rod's starting some CNBC show and I just send it to her and and then I sort of get people's insights. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? When I don't want to do something, or I'm, I try to reach out to smart people. It's not always well known people. It's often mostly yeah. not. But I try to reach out to them and ask them because I think what happens is most reporters, they don't develop relationships with people, like real relationships. I'm not talking friendships because most of these people are not my friends. I've become friends with some of them. And those people are fully aware. If I have to throw them under the bus, I shall do that. I think they're pretty much aware of what I do for a living. There's a friendship contract. Yeah. yeah. Clause sorry. B. Sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. If you do something awful, I might, I might have to kill you. So I think that they appreciate – I think people appreciate having a relationship because what a lot of people do is they call when something happens and then they tell me everything. And it's like, why should I tell you? I don't trust you. I don't have any relationship with you. I do a lot of warning too. I'm about to say this about you. You know what I mean? And like when I wrote that piece about Trumple's thin skin, when I took tech people to task, I told them, I said, I'm going to really be hard on you. Just be aware what I'm about to do. You know, it wasn't like it was some state secret. When there's when there's more sensitive stuff, I don't I believe in warning people and also letting them have a response. Do you want to have a response? Do you want to think? And I think a lot of people, they have these transactional relationships and I don't think they work. I don't I think you get either you get PAP or nothing. You don't get any insight into anything. And so when you, people are more likely to return my call, probably because they know I know already. So that's one thing. But they because I've developed relationships. And I think it, it just like anything else, it, it works better. Can I pull something out of sure. there that it's something that's taken me, I'm a not very social <laughs> person, which has been a, an issue for me as a reporter. But one thing that, that I've recognized over the years is that the tendency people have is to talk to people at the moment when they're maximally in the news. Exactly. And, exactly. and when they're doing that, when you're the source who everybody wants to talk about, either mm-hmm. because you are in the story or just because you're the expert right. on the story, they have to triage the five, seven, right. 10, 14 press requests they just right. got. And the way they're going to do that right. is who do they know? Yeah. Who have they had a good experience right. with before? That's right. That's right. And often people call me in advance, too. Like, this is about to happen. I call people at the weirdest times. I like, I don't, I just, I, and I make lunch appointments. I meet people. I just was over at YouTube to meet with Susan Wojcicki. I'm not writing about YouTube this week, but I want to hear how it's going, you know, in a mm-hmm. very casual, I'm just interested. And I asked a whole lot of interesting questions, for sure. And I learned a lot. And I also, I don't trade information, but like, I don't give any of them a advice. They all ask, oh, let me have your advice. I was like, I don't have any. I'm not working for you. So no. But I do like have discussions and conversations. And I think that's what makes a difference is it's not, um, I don't think they think I'm going to be nicer to them, but I treat them like people. It's very different though when the relationship has a two-sided dimension. Mm -hmm. And I don't, and again, I agree with you, not in the sense of giving advice, but Mm -hmm. where they respect your side of the discussion. Yeah. They, they respect that you know what they are talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Because also I whether, learn a lot. whether you're going to be nice to people or not, mm-hmm. folks 
the worst for people I have found is to feel like they're misunderstood. They right. can absorb disagreement right. a lot better than you didn't know what they were saying right. and screwed them accidentally. Right. No, I'm pretty clear. I'm like, this is what I'm going to say. And you can argue against it. I had a really good discussion with Dan Rose from Facebook in a German bar the other night. It was like a tiki room. It was the Trader Vic's there. And, you know, I'm very upset about the way they're abrogating their responsibility. And I had Adam and we had a great discussion. And, you know, they have their side. And it's useful. Like, and I don't, you know, it was interesting. And then afterwards, I because I, I was kind of like, stop pretending you don't have responsibility for this new stuff that happens. And so I wrote him and I said, I'm sorry it was so mean. It's only because I like you or something like that. Like, because I was hard on him. And so he was, because he had said, oh, I just don't like all the vitriol. And I'm like, it's not vitriol. I have an opinion. It was an interesting discussion and it was great. I I found it very helpful to to have that discussion because then you act like real people versus this fake kabuki theater that goes on most of the time. How do you build relationships with people you don't know but want to know? I call them. I cold call people all the time. I just write them and I say, hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I'd love to have lunch with you. Or can we go out for drink? It's often physical. I want to meet someone in person. So I think that's important. So I'll call anybody. Two things about reporters is interesting. I was talking to a student in Germany who came to see me and she's like, I'm your biggest fan. Can I ask you a question? I said, you're going to be a reporter and you ask if you can ask a question. Like, don't ever say, can I ask a question? It was, don't be so polite. And so that's one thing as I push, I, I just call people and ask them questions if I don't know them. I, I remember I was, I just had, I just saw Ariana Huffington there too. And when she started the Huffington Post, she got attacked a lot by people like Nikki Fink and some other people were super negative to the Huffington mm-hmm. Post. And I thought it was fantastic. I, I had thought about doing something like that in tech. And I really understood what she was doing. Like, I really had been thinking a lot about that medium. And I wrote, I never met her. I found her email. So I can I can find anybody's email. And I wrote her. I said, ignore everybody. Do what you're doing. Ignore the people. And she was getting killed by the mainstream media. It was interesting. And she said, can we have drinks? I said, sure. And it was, it was the beginning of a T- Tell me how you feel about that, that line there between the personal mm-hmm. and the professional. Ariane mm-hmm. Huffington starting mm-hmm. a media company, a sort of techie-ish media company, mm-hmm. somebody you might cover and, in fact, yeah. over the years have covered. You sort of wrote her there and said a little bit in a friendlier way, hey, like, keep your chin up. Don't worry about well, it. Well, it was the attacks were ridiculous. It was, so, it was so insane. Like, it was fascinating how badly she got attacked compared to some other crappy websites that were happening at the time. But there's been more recently this trend in corners of journalism where mm-hmm. folks will FOIA or otherwise get communications between journalists and sources, yeah. right, by FOIAing for the sources. Yeah. And then come out and publish everything that sounds friendly, whereas mm-hmm. a lot of journalism... Oh, that's some bullshit. Like, all this stuff. Jesus. Like, you know what? It's it's ridiculous. It's like, you're just, you're just you're, you're doing your job. You're trying to create a relationship. You're not trying to be their friends. You didn't say, can you hug me tonight? Or can you spoon me? You know, you're just being friendly. I think one of the reasons I left Washington is because I, I was headed toward that political coverage, the White House, the Washington Post when I was there. I'd done really well in the business section, and you could see me heading right to the White House. You know, you could see the path that was happening, or I would have been one of the ones probably considered. And so I just didn't like the incestuous nature of the relationships. It was, although you could say that about tech too. Yeah, um, I was going to ask. It's tech, not the same. DC tech feels is friendlier just, than DC to me. No. Oh, really? yeah. Have you been to some of these horrible parties here? No, it isn't. <laughs> no. No, yeah, yeah. No, it's not. It's not friendlier. I think I think the issue around tech is there's a lot of fanboys of the tech itself. People find a lot of wonder around mm-hmm. the, the devices and the stuff. So I think you get more of a – you get two things. You either get fanboyness, which is I just love tech. I lo- I'm a, ge- a gadget geek kind of thing. I'm not. But I think you get that, which 
you can't help but love some of this stuff, right? It's sort of like, I always use the examples, like if you were watching Orville and, you know, Wright take off, Orville and Wilbur Wright take off from North Carolina going, I don't know, those wings seem thin, like, but I'm missing the idea that he's, they're flying. Like, you know what I mean? You want, there is some wonder in what's happening. Absolutely. You know? And so I think there's fanboyness. And secondly, I think a lot of people, when you're around super rich people, want to be them. And so you get a lot of journalists wanting to be VCs. I never did, you know, or wanting to be them. And why not? You know, private planes, all that money, people licking you up and down all day. So I think there's that. There's a lot. I don't think a lot of journalists here want to be politicians necessarily, but a lot of journalists there want to be those people. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. A thing that is interesting to me, having over the last couple of years Mm -hmm. gotten a little bit more into the tech world Mm -hmm. and and seen a little bit more up close, in D.C., I think the stance towards politicians Mm -hmm. is a reflexive cynicism, a cynicism almost so quick that sometimes we miss when somebody's not bullshitting us, Mm -hmm. uh, which is maybe the right right side of the line to have the bias on. It's so back scratchy here. It's not back scratchy there. Because in mm -hmm. tech, I feel like Elon Musk is like, I'm going to do the Hyperloop. And everybody's like, Mm -hmm. I bet you will. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a – and I don't mean this in a bad way. I'm actually not sure which one – I think both have their uses, and yeah. I think tech is fundamentally different than politics in ways that maybe um, make that more I don't know. I mean, you could say I'm sort optimism. of the insider journalist, but I just called them all sheeple, and I know they were pissed. I, I was think you're an fun. exception to or a lot Peter of Peter Thiel, I think I, like, ripped him around. Like, yes, but I still got along with them. Like, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that's the case. And I think there's quite a few reporters like that. I think it's more the fanboy of geekness, that mm-hmm. they love the phones, they love the— Oh, my God, what did Instagram, what color did they change a filter on? They just love that stuff. And so I think it's what you have is a trade mentality, you know, like what's the next feature? I think the Theranos story was an interesting example of that. 
I think a lot of people who did those very laudatory pieces, we didn't cover Theranos at all because we didn't have a healthcare reporter. And one of the things I'd like to do is not cover things we don't know about. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a healthcare story and it was not a tech story, although a lot of tech writers wrote about it without any qualifications. And there suddenly appeared a whole bunch of profiles of her that were all the same, swearing the turtleneck, you know, it was all yep. look at her board and stuff like that. And I remember thinking there's something wrong with this situation and I wish a healthcare reporter would get on it. Uh, I have blood issues. I've had blood issues in the past. And, you know, you want something like that to work. So you have hopefulness around therapies like that. And it took the really great healthcare reporter from the Wall Street Journal. And I'm not going to say his name because he tweeted me because I mispronounced his name on something. Carrie Hugh, whatever. Anyway, John. John, you're a pain in the ass on Twitter, but you're a really great reporter. Um, it's a great, great story. It's a, it, it continues story to series, be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The one about George Shultz's grandson incredible. was amazing. But it was basic reporting. I mean, uh-huh. I think almost he's a great reporter, but all great reporters could have gotten that story. It wasn't. It wasn't, you know, he got some really good sources inside it as it turned out to be the grandson, it looks like. Oh, fascinating. Of George Schultz. Yeah, uh-huh. there was a great piece he did. And wasn't there also, there was the, and I, I hope I'm not getting the original <laughs> author wrong, the Canaletta New Yorker profile of Theranos, where Aletta was basically there and couldn't get anybody to explain yeah, how, yeah, the, yeah. how it worked. It and, started like, And yeah. a great thing there was, now I'm terrified of mm-hmm. mispronouncing John's name. He'll, he'll tweet at you. But if I understand the story right, it was like, he had the great instinct to say, there's probably something yeah. there. Yeah, I, I felt that too. It was interesting. It is. It was. I was at a uh, an event, and she had done so many profiles, and had wanted to come on stage at Code at one point, and we just didn't just didn't have the expertise at all to understand it. And I was at this Vanity Fair event, and she was being interviewed on stage. I can't remember by whom, but it was a laudatory interview. You know, how did you get so smart? That kind of thing. And I was sitting next to Bob Iger, who I always argue with constantly. You know, we're always discussing different media things and ideas and things. And he's been on stage at Code, and I'm famously – I hate Disney, Disneyland, and he's always trying to get me to go. <laughs> I call it the unhappiest place on earth. And so he he goes, hey, why don't you have her on stage? She's impressive. Like you're always t- complaining about not having enough women on stage because I'm always like, oh, I don't want to have you because you're another white guy. You know I mean? We joke like that. And I said, I don't know. There's something – off about her. I don't get it. Like, I don't get, I just, it seems, I don't know. And he goes, oh, you don't think anybody's, like, you think everybody's lying. I go, I don't think everybody's lying. It just, there's something off, like, you know, with the turtlenecks and the board and the, I don't know. It just, it gets, it just strikes me wrong. And he's like, oh, you're, you know, he just kept saying, you just don't, you just don't like anybody. You're such an unpleasant person. I was like, no, I'm not. I'm really not. And then two weeks later, that story broke and he wrote me, you know, he goes, how did you know? And I said, I really didn't. I just, Something felt off, largely because of all that press around her was kind of creepy, I found. I'm curious as a, as a point about the culture mm-hmm. of Silicon Valley and the culture of Silicon Valley journalism or technology mm-hmm. sector journalism. One thing that feels to me like it's happening, and I think you see it in, in Recode's coverage and The Verge's coverage, is covering technology and covering that sector used to mean covering gadgets. Yeah. It used to mean covering yeah. the latest phone. Sure. And now it's covering Business. power brokers mm-hmm. and it's covering in a very real way power mm-hmm. and things that are changing laws. And and it feels to me that there's a little bit of a trapped betwixt and between an right. old model of coverage that right. had more space to be a little fanboy. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's okay to be that excited. That still goes about on. There's That's, a lot of that. And it's still important. Right. Phones mm-hmm. uh, I have a phone. It's right. okay, I yeah. think. I, I really don't like the new iPhone. Right. But it's also moving to this other kind of coverage where mm-hmm. people need to be treated much more skeptically, yeah. much more like 
power players who are yeah, um, absolutely. acting and on businesses, their own really significant yeah. American businesses, most of them American, which is interesting, U.S.-based. You know, I always thought Walt did a great job of coverage because mm-hmm. he was sort of a, a every person. Kind yeah, of Walt stuff. Mossberg. Yeah, Walt Mossberg. And he was great that way in that he sort of treated it like a reported thing and here's what it works. And I think a lot of people trusted him for that. And he wasn't – what I liked about him is if he really liked something, he said it. If he didn't, he did. You know what I mean? It was much more – he tried it out and enjoyed it. But you're right. I mean, I think people still do that coverage. There's tons of reviews every time something comes out. It's just there's not so much stuff that comes out so much, fewer things being invented. So I want to get to, to, to Walt and how you guys met and, yeah. and the beginnings of All Things D. But it reminds me that um, we began telling the John McLaughlin story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Stopped. Oh, so, so OK. I was at the Post. I went to Columbia. I didn't get an intern, uh, the, the summer internship the first year at the Post. They give it to Harvard people mm. and not like anybody else. It felt like that. That may not be true, but I think it is. And I went to Columbia. And when I came back, I was able to get a lot of jobs in like Florida and these small towns. And I was gay. It was another issue. I'm like, I don't want to be gay in the South. Like, I just don't. And I didn't want to work for a Gannett paper. Because I thought, you know, kill myself now kind of thing. And so I went right back to Washington. I was like, oh, I'm going to start at the top. Why not? You know, and I had friends there and I was I think I was dating someone. I'm always dating someone. So I went to Washington and I got a job first at the city paper. And I worked for, with Jack Schaefer. He had just gotten the job they had fired, like as is wont to do with these uh, weeklies, all weeklies. They like Got rid of everybody and then hired someone new. And Jack was there and I went in to give him some story pitches. And he said, oh, do you want a job? For which I was entirely unqualified for and and did not do a great job as an editor there. But he was great. Pain in the ass, but he's great. And then I went from there to the McLaughlin Group, which was a TV show at the time, which was Bill O'Reilly. I mean, he started – John McLaughlin, if you want to blame anybody, you got to blame John McLaughlin. And I'd say rest in peace, but I hope he is not resting in peace. He's an awful human being. (laughs) I know it's terrible to say. I'm just staying silent on that. I think I, I will, I don't know I will speak ill of the dead. So yeah. you, why first did you make the jump to TV? Oh, I just thought it was interesting. You know, just like when I was a young person, I was 22 or whatever, however old I was at the time. And I thought it was interesting. And I didn't know anything about it. And I had never, I'd always been in print. And why not? Like it was the power show at the time. And I, you know, the thing is I'm very liberal. And so I thought it would be kind of funny. And so I started working there, and I worked on his column for the National Review, which I would write, and then he put the right-wing invective in. Uh-huh. He had lots of people doing stuff for him. And it definitely had—he was a brilliant man. Like, let's be clear. And he, he changed—I mean, he created the he sort did. of argument show, argument percent show, like, as we think of it now. Oh, yeah, the panel discussion and the— Wrong. And, you know, wrestling, pro wrestling. Yeah. I really I think that's how he thought about first, it. First, uh, a quick, quick side mm-hmm. note. First political book I ever mm-hmm. read, and I don't know how this happened, mm-hmm. was Jack Germans. Oh, Jack Germans. That man in the middle seat, I think Eleanor Clift. Maud um, Condrack. I don't know how in high school I he was up He was a nice guy. It was a nice he seemed like a nice guy. Yeah, he yeah. was sort of your old school Baltimore reporter. And they became celebrities, those people, all mm-hmm. of them, which was interesting. So it was, you know, it was all fake. Come on. It was all ridiculous. I know they say it's not, but it's not true. It was utterly scripted. Like you could. They, was it really? They were all characters. Like mm-hmm. Eleanor was sort of the, the liberal lady who, you know, they kept going, oh, Eleanor. And, you know, Jack was the old sort of heavy set guy who was like, come on. Joe. You know what I mean? It was like it was like it was like a TV show as far yeah. as, you know, like a, like a sitcom. And then you had the evil prince. Uh, what's his name? That awful human, another awful human being, um, Robert Novak. 
Robert. He was the first, like, evil conservative. Like, and he played it. He had the big eyebrows and well, he looked like he could kill you at any point. And what was interesting was the Reagan administration. And so they were in the ascendancy. This mm-hmm. it was sort of the beginning of the conservative ascendancy. They had always been around, but now they, like, they had a guy who really was great in terms of taking power. And so, so they were in the ascendancy. And so John hit the he forced people to call him Dr. McLaughlin because I think he had some doctorate, which is kind of crazy. But he had a he, – he really had his finger on the pulse of the time, and he had a show that really – but he didn't, like, go all right wing. He had the, like, left wingers in there, and it was, it was, it was brilliant on many mm-hmm. levels. And it, was, it wasn't illuminating by any stretch because it was like, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being nuclear Armageddon, uh, you know, how do you do this policy? So he took policy and made it sexy kind of and entertaining really. And speaking of the opposite of making things sexy, <laughs> how did you end up being part of a sexual oh, harassment claim? So he, he had so many manias. That, it, that was just one of the many demented ways he behaved. And he would line people up by height. He'd make people go under his couch and get dust balls. Like everybody, you know, <sighs> oh, it was God. that, you know, a lot of people worked there were super conservative. And so it was, it was almost like it was so fascist. <laughs> like, yes, I will be, I will obey you, commandante kind of thing. And so, and I was like, are you freaking kidding me? At one point he tried to get me to make toast. He liked toast with butter. You know what I mean? Oh, who doesn't? Well, yeah, exactly. And he's like, make me toast. He would do – it was a power thing. Like, you will make me toast. And I'm like, I'm not making you toast. And he goes, you will make me toast. And I'm like, I'm not making you toast. I have a graduate degree from Columbia. I'm not making you toast. It's part of the – you know, when you get the thing, it says no toast making. I tried to joke my way out of it. But he was was just – you know, and then he said, just so you know, if I ask you next time to make me toast and you don't do it, I'll fire you. I said, okay. And then he didn't. Like, he just wanted to assert himself. And he did all kinds. Of, like, he'd want to know where you were. Like, you all have to have beepers. He'd have to beep you around. It was crazy. I, you know, I, I, I get rid of these memories. You're bringing them back. But not very abusive. As a, as a, as, and everyone put up with it, which was astonishing because, I guess, I don't know. It was, it was weird. And so he uh, sexually harassed someone in the office, and I saw it. I saw it take place. He had everyone working there until a million o'clock, stupidly, on he had all these weird habits around his briefcase and how to carry it and who touched things on his desk. Like his desk, it was – I'll never forget this. He had this desk that he would keep pristine. Like he obviously had some sort of anal retentive problem. You know what I mean? Like I do too. So, you know, he had to keep it perfect. Everything had to be lined up. Let, let he without OCD. I had OCD. I, I have totally a little OCD. OCD. So he really had Tap it. And so he – he was keeping me late there and he was doing – he used to do that party that he had that was really big and all the bigs came to his big annual party and he used to relish in it. Like he – I did enjoy that he enjoyed the power. You know what I mean? He didn't pretend that he didn't – he wasn't humble in any way. And he – so he was figuring out who was going to come and who he was going to snub. You know what I mean? Oh, that guy. I'm going to fuck with him. Like you know what I mean? It was great. It was like – it was literally like House of Cards but in reality – over a party. And of course, it matters in Washington, right? Who gets invited to which party? You know, it does matter. And so or it did matter. It still does. And so he was doing that. And I, I wanted to leave and I wanted him to sign off on a column. And I, and I was sort of sitting there like, can you stop doing your party thing and just sign off on this thing so I can go? And and I said, can you please do it? And I said that. I said, I, I'd really like to go. I have a life and I would like to leave. It was like nine o'clock. It was some o'clock that I shouldn't have been there. And he said, uh, he goes, I'm doing my party. This is a very important. Do you, do you realize who's there? And I said, I don't care. I don't, I, don't, I don't like Reagan administration. I don't care. I don't want to go to the party. And I'll never forget this because he, he was so smart. He's a Jesuit priest to begin with. So, and I had been taught by Jesuits at Georgetown. And he said, it's such a line. He goes, don't you know the collective power of the people I have assembled in that room? 
And I said, well, I was at Greece last year in the summer, and there was a temple, and it was all fallen down. And there was a frieze with some words on it. I asked the tour guide what it said, and it was Babylon was. And I said, so I figure these people are powerful today. Probably they won't be in 10 years. And I said, new 20 years, I'm going to be super powerful and you're going to be in a wheelchair probably, like gum in your steak or whatever. I said, so I don't know. I take the long view on this thing. It's like Babylon was. And I thought he was going to kill me. And he goes, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> like He loved it. Like it was so funny. And he did appreciate a good like kind of thing. And he um, and I just he was just in love with that thing. So he's sexual. I saw him. He was he was the old kind of sexual harasser, like chase you around the desk, sexual harasser. Come here. Give me a kiss, honey. So I saw him do it, touch someone inappropriately, really inappropriately at at work late at night, sort of massaging her shoulders. And so didn't do anything about it. But we went to complain. She was wonderful. He went to complain to the woman who was running the office, who it, just classic, did not like, you two must be lying. That I'll never forget. That was, and the, and the, it was devastating for a woman to say that to another woman. Two young women saying something to protect this guy was disgusting. Like he was disgusting, but she, to me, was much more disgusting. And so I quit and this woman quit. And I went to the Washington Post then and I took a low level job at the Washington Post and I worked in the style section as a news aide even, and I had all these degrees and everything. And so later, a year later, someone he did it to someone else because this is what happens. And he, this was before Anita Hill, by the way, FYI. He sexualized someone else, and we were, we were deposed because he had a pattern. Like they found out about this other woman, and, and he settled out of court. But the de- deposition was awful. They're like, you're a lesbian. You hate men. I'm like, not only this son of a bitch. No, I don't. Like, what are you talking about? And so I have brothers. I love men. And so I told my dad, like, it was ridiculous. It was so, it was an awful time. And so he, he settled out of court. But what happened was it got pushed under the rug, like, as everything. And he still continued to hold power. Like, nobody cares. So then the Washington Post was writing a profile. Eric Alterman was writing it. And nobody would speak Eric on the Eric Alterman record. was at the Post. He was writing I, for the magazine. He oh, wasn't at the Post. It was okay. a magazine. And nobody would talk to him on the record. And that drove me crazy. I was like, you, nobody believes it when nobody's name is on something like this. And so I let him use my name on the record. And I did a quote. And I and there he's like, did he do it? I said, absolutely. This is what I saw. Like, I was under no, like, stricture, not because this other woman settled, which I don't, I wish she hadn't. I wish it had gone to trial so that people would understand and see. And I just said what he did. And, and it was incredible, like, that people wouldn't do that. And I was young at the time. And since I had no aspirations of being a conservative person, I was, it didn't hurt me. Like, it wasn't that it was, there was any, any cost for me, really, except I was telling the truth. And later I saw him at an event, uh, not so long after, I was at the Washington Post at the time, and he came up to me, and he was like, Harold Swisher! And I was like, oh, God, here he is again. He's super tall, by the way. He was a big, tall man. And he goes, I just want to say, everybody in this town, they stab you in the back, and you stab me in the front. I appreciate that. And I said, anytime, you son of a bitch. And it was, I said, I hope I never see you again. And it was like, it was, like it was astonishing. Like, he was like, I try to say the things that I think about people. Not, I don't do it always. But it was amazing. And he's like, oh, ha, ha, ha. I knew he'd like it. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking. From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight, and the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? There is a mentality that happens in, mm-hmm. in this town. It may mm-hmm. happen in others, this but I know town. this one. That's this the Mark town, right? Le- I love yeah. that book. I love Mark Leibovich. <laughs> I love Mark Leibovich. Mm-hmm. I have issues with that book. but okay. um, Made me laugh. It's very funny. <laughs> but the thing I will say is that there is this all-in-the-game quality mm-hmm. that some people have. Some mm-hmm. people have and some people don't. And I find it to be one of the most repulsive tendencies yeah. you can have. All-in-the-game, what do you mean? That extreme levels of personal betrayal, unkindness, yeah. doing terrible things to people what's like through policy making. Right. And then at the end of the day, I mean, and people will speak nostalgically. They will they will talk about nostalgically how you used to be able to like go to war all day yeah. over whether or not people were going to die from not having health yeah. insurance. But then you could go get drinks at night. Right. Yeah. And I think I'm a pretty civil person mm-hmm. and I'm not saying there isn't a value to, to comedy, but there can be here a quality, and, and I think you see it. Mm-hmm. It's such a great quote, and in some ways it makes me mm-hmm. it makes you like him. But this idea that, well, as long as you played the game right, right. as long as you like came out and you had mm-hmm. the good quip and mm-hmm. you know you used your name, yeah. then it's all fine. Yeah. There's just something about it that is— it's, It is. It's gross. It's, it's, it works it, off of a different ethical set. That's one of the reasons I left. You know, even yeah. after being, I was like, what are they fighting for? Because it's not money. Like, I get it if it's for money or sex or something like worthwhile. It's but power. But is it? Is it, it is. real? I thought businesses had more power. See, I got into the business section, and I felt businesses really had the real power in this country, or and specifically in Silicon Valley, making things like creating industries. And so, I couldn't get out of here fast enough for that because of that. Because at least you know whatever you think of Silicon Valley, they make stuff, mm-hmm. and they make major stuff that changes lives in a way that's more significant to me. Like if you think about like even civil things, you know, civil progress that we make. IBM was one of the first companies that did integration and gave their gay employees rights. So did Apple. Way back in, I wrote about it for the Washington Post. Round Rock, Texas fought that state and that county over gay issues. I think corporations where a lot of stuff can happen, a negative and positive. I put less of my faith in policymakers than I do in businesses. One thing before we leave the, the McLaughlin story, mm-hmm. there can be a tendency, I think, hearing this story mm-hmm. to feel like, Oh, back in the day. Oh, no. It's and all over the And then you see Donald Trump. Oh, it's all over the place. And well, he's because, that age, right? He's, still he's that age a bit, but also— Oh, it happens there, all over Silicon There's Valley. also this thing where power whitewashes sense. Everything, yep. And it's because he won. Mm-hmm. I want to say very much I am not saying it's okay, mm-hmm. but because he won, like, the town has sort of moved on. Not everybody in it, but I'm it's— I'm so sure. I think a lot of particularly Republicans have oh, just yeah, of said— of course. But honestly, did you ever think they were going to do anything else? Oh, please. Do you ever think Paul Ryan's going to develop a backbone? You're going to, you're going to wait a very long time, that guy. That guy. I, I, think the, I think that relationship is—I'm going to be very interested to see if Trump becomes Carter mm-hmm. or if 
partisanship is so powerful now that there is no degree of ideological heterodoxy or personal I behavior. I expect nothing from these Republicans. That's I interesting. Think they will. The you only one right. who's developing any is, is Lindsey Graham. A couple of them. I mean, Ben Sass, and, I think, gets a lot yeah, of, and, should get a lot and, of credit um, here. And uh, John McCain, when he feels like it, you know, when mm-hmm. he actually goes to what he genuinely is like, it seems like he... He doesn't like to be like what he's like. It was fascinating to me to watch all these Republicans who have been willing to sweep Trump's ethics violations sort of under the rug. And mm-hmm. then as soon as they want to get rid of their ethics office mm-hmm. so they can right. have some more ethics violations, Trump came out and Yeah, yeah, them. it's interesting. And that's why I wonder if his approval ratings stay this low and he keeps attacking them. Trump. If yeah, there yeah. won't be backlash. But that, I don't know. You know, you never can know this guy because he's so relentlessly interesting whether one day you'll be like, you know, shut the fuck up. United States saying that to him, like, stop talking. You know what I mean? Stop. Enough. enough A national delete your account moment. Just like, ugh, this guy, you know. But okay, so you moved to cover business. Yeah. Uh, I went to the Washington Post. I worked in the style section. I did every story known to man. I would do whatever, you know, reporters are notoriously lazy, so I filled in for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I worked my way up and I got the summer internship. And I finally got the summer internship and I worked in the style. I worked. I did so many stupid party stories. It's actually a good way to write about the culture is through parties. And so I well, did those. Style was very powerful. Oh, it was then. great. It was great. It was was so Sally Quinn at style at this point? She had just left. She just she left. She just left. But it was. It was and so good. Stephanie Mansfield the was there. People don't know this. You know, Marjorie Williams. What an amazing talent. She the late Marjorie Williams. Late Marjorie. Oh, yeah. she's my favorite person. Lovely person, too. You know, more talented you are, often the nicer you are. She was such a wonderful woman. And what a beautiful writer. And she mm-hmm. was freaking tough on people. I love that she did that. She did one piece on one guy. I can't remember. He worked for Reagan. He put his closet off the record because he had all these beautiful sweaters and shirts. And she said, I can't tell you what the closet was like. She was such a good writer. She said, I can't tell you what was in it. I can't tell you how many sweaters were beautifully arranged. I can't tell you this and that. And he, she goes, but the, let me just tell you, it's a metaphor for this guy. Look at me, but don't see. Oh, so good. And then she went after Barbara Bush. Another she writer was, once told me about her that she can see emotions the way the rest of us can see color. Ugh, astonishing. She and she was lovely, but she would go in with a knife, like, but not mean. It was so true. It was utterly true. Every she wrote a piece on Lee Atwater that I thought was, you know, everyone was doing. Oh, he's dying, and she just said, "No, we're not going to like forgive him for what he did." You know, and she did a really tough profile of him as he lay dying, essentially. And I just I remember thinking that took guts to do that. And she wasn't mean. She just was truthful. And so I, I took a, I read her book over and over again. The woman at the, the zoo? The woman at the Washington Zoo or something. Yeah. yeah. She's a real inspiration to me. But there were great writers. Stephanie Mansfield was fantastic mm-hmm. when she would like do all those profiles. And I don't know where she went. She Every now and then I get a ping from her. But she was great. She was tough. She was a tough writer. And there were all these amazing writers there. And so I just enjoyed working at the, at the style section a lot. And then I head over to business. Oh, well, I, I got I the was inter- also at the Washington yeah. Post business yes, section. Yes, I know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was at the South section. I got the summer internship. They got. They finally decided. Oh, we'll give it to the kid who's like annoying us here. And I did the best that summer. I just the one who did the best got hired. You know what I mean? I did the best. I just did. I wrote everything. I wrote for every section. And then I went. I had to go around and try to sell myself. You remember that? You had to go around and convince. I never got the. the I I didn't apply for the internship. Yeah. So I got rejected for much less story. Yeah, but you got rejected. There was a lot of like you got to sell yourself. And so Metro wouldn't hire me. I just couldn't get a job in it. National one certainly wouldn't hire me. And so I went to the business section because it was the backwater and nobody cared. Who was running it then? Peter. Bear, lovely guy, fantastic guy. And he had a, several women leaving for maternity leave, and he just had someone needed someone to fill in, and I got that job. And I filled in, and then I made myself indispensable. And then later, David Ignatius ran it. Were you there when Steve Perlstein ran it? 
No, it was, he was there though. Steve is who brought me to the post. And yeah, I he's love fantastic. Steve. Yeah. He's great. He dresses beautifully. Um, he does dress beautifully. That's because his family is Louis yep. of Boston. Mm-hmm. But he, yeah, he never was there. more self conscious of your tie knot than when yes. you're standing yeah. near Steve Pearlstein. Yeah, he was great. He was terrific. He was, I think he was the deputy to Ignatius at the time. I think mm-hmm. that's what he was. And so I filled in and I just made myself indispensable. And what happened was I started covering, re- eventually, I started covering retail. And I ended up covering like the death of Woody's, the death of, Heck, you know, Heckinger, all the big retailers, which the Post relied on, which was interesting because I got an insight into what was about to happen to newspapers. Woody's, Garfinkel's, you don't remember these, but no, I wrote you, about all these the, aren't even names I know. Right. Well, they were the but big. But these were the core, the advertising core, base. Core. And I wrote about their decimation. And I'll never forget how nice Don Graham was about me writing about the end of his business, you know, essentially. And then I wrote about that, and then I ran into this family called the Haft family that owned Crown Books and Track Auto and something Crown else. Crown Books is my local bookstore growing yeah. up. And so I wrote about their family falling apart, and I wrote these series of fantastic— like, they started warring with each other. They all had pompadours, which was so good. There was a gay son, a crazy wife, crazy sister. It was, like, a fantastic story. And I wrote it like King Lear. I decided to write it like King Lear. And they're the only area billionaires, one of the few. And he was very famous for creating discounting. So he had some really interesting national resonance. Oh, he created discounting. He did. He had a lawsuit against the Supreme Court that allowed him to sell at a huh. discount because you didn't used to be able to sell at a discount. But he was an awful, awful person. And so I wrote about it like it was King, like he was King Lear. And again, the pomp, it was all great. And I wrote at the time Barbarians of the Gate came out, which was a really great book, if you remember Barbarians. It was about the R.J. Reynolds thing. So business started to become sexy. It was about money and business and power and everything. And so there were a series of writers like uh, James, um, whatchamacallit, he's so good. He wrote um, a lot of Michael Milken stuff, Connie Brock, all kinds of stuff, James Stewart. They had wrote these books like they were dramas, like in dynasty, essentially. And so I wrote this like it was a narrative, like a King Lear narrative of a tra- family tragedy with money and power. I'll never forget Ben Bradley loved the story because this guy was such an ass around Washington but and lorded over people as money. And, and it was easy to cover because there were lawsuits. So everything was revealed and, the, and every part of the family wanted to talk to me because they wanted to attack the other person. Mm-hmm. And so I knew like when the son was getting fired, he didn't. I called him. I said, what do you think about getting fired? He's like, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, you better talk to your dad. When the wife was divorcing the father over the son, the first son, I said, oh, what do you think of the divorce? Because the divorce had business implications. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, call your wife. And, and then there was a gay <laughs> son that came in that sided with the father against the primary son, the first son. And then the gay son turned on the father because he had been it was it went on and on and on. It was fantastic. And but so this reminds me of something to, to go back to Kara's mm-hmm. lessons for, mm-hmm. for reporters. It is something I am not any good at doing. But I read Mark Andreessen said about you that you are really, really good at going to somebody, showing them what you know and have heard from other mm-hmm. people in a way that makes them feel almost forced to tell triangulate. you everything. I triangulate. You triangulate. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that? That is a I, I know more than other people. I, I make sure I know more than everybody else. And they know I know. You know what I mean? I don't I don't bluff. I'm not a good bluffer. So I find out everything and they then they have to tell the truth. Because people if they think that you know, they have to tell you. I find that's the case. And so in this case, it was easy because there were lawyers everywhere and lawyers mm-hmm. just never shut up. And, and uh, the family was so I wrote about it. But the, I, by the end, I got super sick of them. Like I was like, this is sick. Like was when you on? say lawyers never shut up, how do you mm-hmm. cultivate a lawyer on a case as a source? On this case, that's case. The, the press was an important part of the strategy. Oh, so, interesting. So yeah. the lawyers were going to of the course. press trying to. That's yes, of course. And they had all the big litigators. And one of the things that I liked about it is Ben Bradley loved the story. And, you know. 
he was like the sun, like the sun came and shone on you. And every day he would come in or he'd come over. He's like, what do you got today, kid? Like that kind of thing. I don't mm-hmm. think he said kid, but I heard kid. Yeah, what do you got for me? What, yeah, there was what, a silent kid on yeah, every sentence he, said. he uttered. And it was like, what are you doing to entertain me as an editor? And I, that just really got me going. And I just, I wanted to, I wanted to please him. I wanted to make Tell me him a bit laugh. About that. I haven't worked for Ben Brown. Yeah. I, I, I didn't have much I contact with him before. I had very little interaction with him, but he was always but incredibly supportive. You read, you read mm-hmm. accounts of that time. And you yeah. talk to people at the post mm-hmm. that time and his ability to inspire he did. to make people want to please him was really tremendous and i'm he, curious here's what how he did he taught me the, the benefit of a great story i think a lot of reporters either they do incremental things or they don't understand the sweet they don't tell things like a, everything is a story and reporters have lost the feeling of telling a great story and he loved a great story he wanted to be entertained. He wanted to be not just entertained. He wanted to be informed, entertained. He liked the humanity of things. And I think people, reporters lose the humanity of what it, whatever it is. And he didn't. And so you really wanted to please him. You know, even when he was, I saw him right before he died and um, up on the, one of the floors of the Washington Post after it sold to Jeff Bezos. And he was there. And I think he was 90 or at some age that like he was the most vibrant person in the room. Yeah. He's always the most, but I got to say, I was like, you're all like fucking old compared to this guy. And he just was like, he, he exuded a joie de vivre that would be hard to replicate. It was really true. And he was so sexy. And so he just was a, just one of these people, it just the sun, he was like the sun. And, and so it was always great working for him. And I, I think the post lost a lot of its, now I think it's doing amazingly well. Um, it is doing great under luster. Bezos yes. and Marty um, Barron. And Marty Barron. I just visited Fred Ryan there for lunch, and I had a great—I was so happy to be there and how well it was doing. But he he just was great, and he wanted to do it. So I wrote about this thing, and I got tired of them. And so I, I had all this vacation time because I worked all—I was one of these people that worked till 10 at night, every night. And I still do, actually. And he—I had all—so I, I was dating someone who lived in Russia, and I started to do all these weird email stuff that you would do to communicate because it was expensive to call. And I got super interested in online communications. It was very early on, and I started writing about it for the business. I I shifted gears, and they gave me a new beat because I was like, get me off of Dave, Dave Ignatius. I was like, get me off this beat. And he said, well, there's this little company in Virginia called AOL. You might find it interesting because you seem to like this email stuff. You know what I mean? And it was, it was starting because a lot of these – most of the tech had been covered as government contractors who made things for the government. But one of the hubs of the internet is here, May East, I think it is, and – PSI net, all these things started here because this is where the internet hub was, one of the hubs. There's one in the West called May West, haha. I forget what it stands for. And so I started covering AOL and I went out to visit Steve Case and I got entranced with the internet immediately. I really did intuitively understand it was a game changer. What is the first thing you saw on the internet? I don't remember. It was a World Wide Web page. I don't remember the mm-hmm. exact. I'll tell you the thing I remember, remember, was I met Steve Casey. And he told me he was going to take over the world, which was interesting because he's a, he's not the, that kind of person. You know, he's not someone who bra- – he's not a bragger. And he had like 50 people and it was in, behind a car dealership. And, and that's when I met Walt because I, when I worked on the book later. I was at Duke for a fellowship and – I downloaded a book onto the server, Calvin and Hobbes. I'm thinking it was Calvin and Hobbes. I don't remember perfectly. But I remember thinking, and I messed up the server, and one of the people who assists system operators was mad at me because I caused a problem and I felt bad. But then I kept saying, I just downloaded a book. And they were like, so what? And I go, what? What do you mean, so what? I just downloaded a book. What are you talking about? I just downloaded a whole book. If I could download a book, I could, like the Willy Wonka thing. I downloaded a chocolate bar. Don't you understand? 
Like, I now can move food, particles. I remember it was one of those moments, like, if you can download a book, you can download a music, you can download everything. Everything's going digital. And it just, like, boom, it was like that. Like, uh uh-oh. Went back to the post and was covering this. And I just was like, everything, having covered retail, because that was over, and Walmart doesn't advertise, by the way. That was who was coming Mm -hmm. in to target Walmart and stuff like that. Classifieds, I got obsessed with classifieds. And I kept thinking, the Washington Post is screwed because classifieds are static, expensive. They have no efficacy. And the people you talk to are rude. Like, so the whole experience is awful. And I remember thinking, when this gets digitized, it's over. Like every single bit of their business. I'm always thinking about businesses and how they survive. And and I remember going, oh, no, this is really serious. We got to, you know, and I I urged them to invest in AOL, actually, because there was a point where the Post could have, like Politico, same thing. They didn't invest in Could have almost invested in Facebook. In you, and you too, in Facebook. No, he did. He had a piece of Facebook. He did, but he... Gave it up. He gave it up. Oh, that guy. He's such a sweetheart, but that was... Don Graham is the world's best human being. He is, but he shouldn't have done that. And I'm (laughs) believing the person he gave it up for didn't deserve it as much as he did. So I immediately understood the danger, like, oh, no, oh, no, 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 no. And I talked to Don about it quite a bit. And he was like, oh, Carol, you know, I was like, ah, you're screwed. Tell me a bit about, so you met Walt Mossberg while mm-hmm. doing this. When I was doing, the, I ended up doing a book about AOL. Mm-hmm. So what happened is I went to John Carp, who's now the head of Simon & Schuster, but he was an editor at Random House, or at Crown Books division of, anyway, he was a lower level editor at the time. So super talented. And he said, I was pitching a half book, like, should I do this family falling apart? And all the others, I could have sold it. And I met him and he said, oh, everyone in this story is an asshole. Why do you want to write a book about assholes? And I was like, I don't. Like, you know, when someone says something to you and just the penny drops and he goes, what are you doing now? And I said, I'm writing about this internet, like online services. It wasn't called internet at the time. He goes, so computers? I'm like, yeah, it's going to change everything. And he's like, and I was super passionate about it. And he's like, that's what you should write about. Pick a company. And that's, and he bought the book like right away. And so I wrote a book about AOL. Like that was my book. And so, and I met Walt doing the research for that book because Walt was the very few people understood it. And he was the only one who was touting AOL and and online services. Tell me about your partnership because you and Walt created All Things D. Yeah. You created Recode. What, when what I was is, working on the book, the when I was oh, it was great. It's been one of the best partnerships I think in both of our lives. You know, now he's at Verge and stuff like that. We've you know we're now part of a bigger organization. He got me to come to the journal because he thought online services and the internet was important, and I was one of the few people who understood it, and nobody took it seriously at the journal, and he wanted someone to cover it. And so he urged Paul Steiger to hire me. Uh, he got me the job there, essentially. And so I moved to San Francisco. It was interesting because I was on the, the Washington Post train. you know. And of, he was here. He, was, he, he worked out of here because mm-hmm. he covered the Defense Department, the State Department, and he just stayed here. His family was here. It was good that he was here because he wasn't part of the cabal of Silicon Valley. And so he got me the job, essentially, and I moved. I, I changed my whole life in my early 30s, and I just did it. It was one of, another moment. I'm just going to go cover these people. And I, you know, I met Jeff Bezos when he had very few people, and Jerry Yang, and Mark Andreessen, and all the others very early. And Google wasn't even, didn't exist until the end of the century. Tell me a bit about how you and, and Walt work together, because it well, seems like it's been a very important yes, partnership. Yes, it's been. We, like, initially, initially he got me the job, mm-hmm. and we would see each other a lot and talk a lot about tech, and he'd help me out, say, oh, you should talk to this person, that person. It was a great mentor, another great mm-hmm. mentorship. And then we would meet at conferences, PC Forum. There was a bunch of conferences, and we're all like, these fuck. The PC Forum was a great conference, actually. But a bunch of them, they just sucked. They were like sponsors on stage. This is so, it's so interesting what's going on. Why are these conferences so bad? 
And we talked about doing a blog, too. Like, we, the blogs had just started. It was the 19, uh, 1990s, not, late 1990s. And we were like, we should do a blog. We brought it to the journal, and they didn't bite on it at all. At the time, they were like, what's a blog? Like, that kind of thing. And I'm like, Andrew Sullivan's doing one. This is this is early, early. And TechCrunch, I think, it started. And I had just gotten back from my pregnancy. I forget. Anyway, they – and Megan had – just got a job at Google. I don't remember. Anyway, I was like, we have to start writing this in a blog form. And they didn't want to do it, but they were they did accept our concept of event, all things D event, the D conference. And they did it because Walt was so powerful, really. They wanted to please him. He was a juggernaut moneymaker for them in terms of advertising because his column was so popular. And so they did it to please. Walt wants to do it. That's what we'll do. And it turned out made money right from the beginning. And we were able to assemble like Gates and Jobs and all the big, big ones and do really great interviews and create a really great event. Tell me about your theory of really great interviews. So you've Mm -hmm. given me some advice on interviewing Mm -hmm. that I have found invaluable. But Mm -hmm. but tell me... Other conferences had big people at yeah. them. They still yeah. do, and yeah. they're very bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they suck up to them. <laughs> what makes a good interview? Not sucking up to someone, having a real conversation, asking the questions you want to know. Like It's interesting because I was looking at some Elon Musk interviews, and some of them are just terrible. But his two at, at our Code conference are fantastic. When he did it, one he did at D and one he did at Code. We engage people where they are, and I think our theory is that intelligent people want to have intelligent conversations. And you know, a lot of people, first they interview people and then they don't listen. They're not hearing the conversation. And so they have a list of questions they want to get to. Mm-hmm. And that's dull. You should go where the conversation takes you and not try to score points. So the other thing is people are trying to score points. You know, I'm going to get that person. I never go into an interview. And like tick that. boxes. Yeah, tick boxes. Right. You have to hit the news Now of we the will day. talk about. People will, people will now Mark Zuckerberg is fake news. Like right. if it gets to it, you yep. get to it. And you, I think you, they lose sight of people love a great conversation. I used to love that movie, Dinner with Andre, mm-hmm. My Dinner with Andre, which was a conversation. It was a movie about a conversation. And one of my, another person I followed was sadly, he killed himself, Spalding Gray, which he did Swimming to Cambodia, which I loved, which is a movie. And then he did a show at the Kennedy Center. I'm a big theater fan where he pulled people off the, from the audience. It was an interview show. He got on stage and he just picked someone from the audience he didn't know. And then he, he, he did an interview with them. Anyone is interesting. He was such a good interviewer. Like, that was the point. Like, everyone has a great story to tell. And he pulled stuff out of people that was astonishing. Like, that was revelatory to me that he could make. You didn't have to have a celebrity to have a great conversation or a famous person. And so one of the things we try to do is have great conversations. That's one. Two, we ask questions people want to ask. Journalists don't ask good questions. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, they're scared to. Like, someone's not going to like them or something like that. And I like to ask things I like to know. Like, Steve Jobs, one point I asked him. What what do you do all day? Like, like I want to know. Like, what does Steve Jobs do? Yeah, he's such an icon. Like, what is he? What's your day like? Like, what? And it wasn't like I wasn't trying to kiss his ass or anything. Like that. I was like, I was genuinely curious. Like, what do you get up? You speed to work, and you don't wear a seatbelt. I know that part, but what takes your day? Like, and people found that interesting. And then when he was quite sick, his last interview he did with us, he was not very long before he died. He. I said, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And it was, you know, nobody would have asked that question because he was so clearly ill. But I'm like, I'm curious. If you, you have a certain amount of time here and it looks like not long. What, would you, what, what do you want to do now? And he talked about TV, changing TV. It was fascinating, you know, as if he was going to live for a decade or two more. I mean, he should have lived a decade or two more, three or four, actually. I just asked questions that I'm interested. You know, I'm like with Elon, when he started talking about simulation, that the world is in a simulation, we didn't cut it off. Like, why? 
No, that was great. Wasn't it? It was great. Like he just went and and we also are not But it was authentic. It's authentic. Yeah. I mean he <laughs> Yeah. We ended up at, at Vox. Mm-hmm. So just a quick bit of mm-hmm. background here. As I remember, it was former Vox Media Josh Topolsky who yes. asked a sort of weird question of Elon Musk of do you believe we're all No, it was a woman who asked that question. A woman asked that question. Oh, am I wrong? All yeah. Right, so Josh is the one who attacked Ari Manuel one year, but that's a different story. Oh, sorry. So I, I might have this wrong. Anyway, Elon Musk went into this thing and he's like, my brother and I, and this is a detail I remember from it so well, my brother and I argue about this so much we had to ban it from our hot tub conversations. <laughs> and it was so specific. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. People want to be people. And I don't think... It, they're relieved, actually. You know what I mean? And also, one of the things is I am I know them super well. So I did a podcast with Mark Andreessen that I think was great. We, it was great. We, we fight with each other. We're like, mm-hmm. like, you asshole. Like, no, that's not true. And so I think he enjoys it. I had a great one with Bill Gurley, the same thing. I like challenge them to think harder. And so I think a lot of people either, they just, they just I don't know what happens. They're just, they're just st- stilted. And so well, I think, I'll tell you what happens for me, mm-hmm. right? And, and I'll be honest about this. I feel a rush of social anxiety. Oh, do you? Um, it's not that I won't ask people questions I don't think they like, mm-hmm. but it is a physical effort for me oh, to do it shy. and to not you're soften shy. it. Yeah. Yeah, you're right? shy. Though. You're shy. I'm not even sure if it's shy. It's somehow, socially, there's a tendency to, when normally when you meet someone, you don't say things that are going to upset them. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a high bar as a just normal social human being to do that. And so it is really a retraining of yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And every time I soften it too much, I regret it. Um, yeah. I think people manage this stuff a lot better than, than yeah. they're given credit I, for. Do you not have that? Do you no, not I don't feel that clenching anxiety. of the stomach? No, not at all. I'm just interested. Like, mm-hmm. I'll ask anything. I'll, I'll, I'll go up to anybody. There's several I wish I had asked more of, but I think mostly I ask what I want to ask. And, and I don't shy. I, I'm not shy, so it doesn't. I don't suffer from that. And I don't care if people like me. I think that mm-hmm. helps a lot. Like, I think I don't really care what people think of me. And that doesn't mean I'm unnecessarily rude. I just, you know, and again, I, I don't let them off the hook. That's the one thing is that they say something just ridiculous. Like most people go, well, some people say, I'm like, that's fucking ridiculous. Are you kidding me that you just, that came out of your mouth? And so I think they're like, what? Like, you do do that. You've done it to me. Yeah, It's exactly. very effective. It is. But I think that it's like, I think they're like, oh, well, then I might as well tell the truth. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and I think they want to, you, people want to tell you. Like, have you ever, like, sometimes I'm silent a lot of the time and I just sit there. Are you? I don't think I've seen that. It does in interviews. Watch, I'll be saying nothing and then people rush into a, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of tricks you can use. Yeah. Letting the pause go the is, compliment, a, is a very real one. The compliment. I saw one, I saw Dan Rose do it the other day to someone. He said to a journalist at an interview and he goes, you know, our conversation really helped me form what we were doing at Facebook. And I thought, oh, my God, like, and I, this can't work. Like, and the person was like, really? Yes, I agree with you. And it was like, oh, like, I, I'm just going to use it again, the compliment. I can't, I'm not good with the compliment, but it was fascinating. You, you gave me a piece of advice that I've actually passed on to a bunch of other people, mm-hmm. which is that it's also your job as the interviewer to set the social context, that mm-hmm. people will act back to you the way you are acting yeah. to them. And when you seem like you're being honest and giving them shit mm-hmm. and acting as if you were very good friends, mm-hmm. there's, I think, almost automatic social yeah. cues that take over. Yeah. That people act back, whereas if you're being formal and mm-hmm. careful, people are going to be formal and careful back at you. And right. Is it just you or do you think about what is the social environment you're trying to create there? I think you have to – every interview is different. That's the one thing people don't realize. So one of the things I spent a lot of time when I was a young reporter – I say this a lot. When I was a young reporter, I used to wonder what people were lying to me about. Mm -hmm. And I think the more effective thing is what are they lying to themselves about? Like I say this a lot. You know what I mean? What do they need to get through the day to tell themselves? I'm not this. I am this. And the other thing is what – what do they need to let you know about themselves? 
Steve Case, for example, not anymore as much, but at the time, he really wanted you to know he was the smartest guy. Like, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? He wasn't like a braggart or anything like that, but he was the smartest guy. And he, he just did. Or Ted Leonsis, these are people I wrote about. And he wanted you to like him. Like, he, you know what I mean? Like, and so you could take advantage of that very well. So if you understood what the motivation of the person is that you're talking to, you can often, I don't want to say manipulate them because that's not really what you're doing, but you, under, you have to understand where they're coming from. What do they need? What what persona they need to put out there for you? And how can you use that to have a better conversation? What is important to them? What's their motivation? Is it money? Is it being smart? Is it fear? It's often fear with a lot of people. And if you can figure out people's primary motivation, you can learn a lot about them. How do you think about figuring out the primary? Is that something you do through reporting? Is it something that you just have a good intuitive, intuitive sense of? Intuitive. Once you start to, interesting, mm-hmm. when I was interviewing President Obama, you know, he talks in paragraphs. Like, mm-hmm. it's a hard interview because yeah. he, like, and, and he has spent the last... I, I just interviewed him. Yeah, the, I know the you beginning did. Great or, job. The, yeah. I actually, it's funny. I, the beginning, he went for a long time. Right. And in my experience with him, if you let him get comfortable, he'll actually stay a lot longer. Mm-hmm. So we got double the time. But yeah. the beginning... These right, are, they're paragraphs. I think we have a 15-minute answer on that. Right, exactly. And so here's the other thing. This is what I thought about him. He and talks also in well-structured, which makes yes, him no, hard to super, interrupt. He's a lawyer. Right? He's, he's not just, lawyer's it's mentality. very So he talks in paragraphs, some of which he says things, some of which he doesn't. He has been kissed up to for eight years. That's what I was thinking. He's the mm-hmm. only person who gets to talk in a room, right? Nobody yep. interrupts President Obama or any of these rich people. Like I've seen it happen with Bill Gates. He's at a table and he's the only one talking. And I'm like, why doesn't anyone like interrupt him? Like, let's see what happens. So I interrupt. And so before the interview with President Obama, I said, just so you know, so I wanted to get it out in the open. I said, you tend to talk in paragraphs. And I have the shortest time of anybody who's gotten an interview with you. I think it was 25 minutes or something like that. I said, so I'm going to interrupt you, just so you know. I'm going to interrupt you. So don't be alarmed, because I don't think you get interrupted a lot. And I'm going to. And I'm going to stop your paragraph talking, if you don't mind. And I'm not trying to be impolite, but just be prepared. So I was, I got in his head. How did he respond to that? He's like, well, I've heard about it. Yeah, I've heard about you. He tried to insult me. Like, you know, it was very deaf. He goes, oh, I've heard, all, you know, I heard you're obnoxious. Like I said, and then I was like, yes, I am. Like, I wasn't going to let him have power with that one. It was a fascinating, I did it right before, like, a minute before the interview, because I knew it would be in his head. I didn't mean to unnerve him, but I wanted to... Then he didn't talk in paragraphs, which was interesting, because he wasn't going to like... I'm not going to be what she said it going to be. That's so that worked really well. And then during the interview, one of the things that was interesting about him is you get a better answer out of him if he's angry, or slightly angry, or, or annoyed with yep. you. He wasn't interested in pleasing me. Like, you know what I mean? Some people are people pleasers. Some people have... He didn't want to impress me. That wasn't his motivation. But he... If you challenged him you got a better answer out of him. And so he said he was talking about how his opinions had changed around encryption and about Apple. The Apple thing was happening at the time. And so I said, you know, your opinions have changed around encryption. No, they have. And I said, no, no, they have. And he goes, no, they haven't. And I said, would you like me to read what you said during the campaign? Because I can do that if you want me to, but they are different. And I said, I get it. You now have access to better intelligence and you know the threat and you're responsible for the threat. Like, I get it. And then he gave a great answer. He goes, yeah, you know, every day I think, oh my God, if something happens on my watch, if something I knew about and didn't do it, and it was a great answer, but it was out of like, I annoyed him, like I poked at him. And every good answer I got out of him was me going, no, that's not what you said. Like, and so I wasn't trying to do got you, but I was arguing with him. And I, I remember thinking this man never hasn't gotten argued with in a long, long, long time. Like nobody disagrees with him. And that works really well with mm-hmm. Silicon Valley people. They just go crazy. They expect it from me now, but they go crazy when you question their answers. 
speaking of the presidency, mm-hmm. you want to run for mayor yeah. of San Francisco. Yeah. 2023? Is that still maybe, the plan? Maybe sooner. I might have to sooner, but I don't think I can sooner. 2019 is a I, I don't think I can. Right? I got things. I think Jim Bankoff would have a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> tell me why. I want to be a real old mayor. And ah. I, Tell me why. And I don't mean in the sense of, t- tell me why you want to do the job of it. Because um, I want to be licked up and down all day. No, because I think that I've always had a profound sense of civic duty. Believe me, I haven't been as good at civic duty myself. You know, I'm not a community activist or anything like that. I think that we abrogate, I can see a lot of the solution to the future. And Tom Friedman talked about this in communities, in local communities where things can change, where you can actually affect. Because if you look at the world as a whole, it's like exhausting and depressing. Like, Mm -hmm. what can I change, especially right now? And so if you can change things on a local level, you can begin to change things as they move upwards. And so I live in San Francisco. I don't like how it's been going, you know, how the city has been run. It's filthy. It, there's homelessness is rampant. Drug use is heavy. It's a beautiful city that's, that's a hard place to live. And there's untold wealth. And so I'm like, what the, why can't people come together? And then at the time when I was thinking about this, there was the vomiting on the buses, the Google buses and all the fighting. And it was so partisan. They talk about partisan. If you think D.C. is partisan, Fighting over housing in San Francisco is ridiculous. Brutal. It's brutal. And it's ridiculous to fight. Like, we need more houses. And so I was at But this... wait, a second ago, you said everybody can come together. And isn't the problem there that people do not think we need more houses because the current well, homeowners enjoy do. their views? So, no, it depends. It's either the leftist sort of housing people who don't want to do density building. I, You know, there's this whole argument over density. Yeah. Uh, YIMBY. Yes, in my back. There's a y- NIMBYs and the YIMBYs. And then there's a n- lack of debt. It's so complicated. You're on the YIMBY side. I'm a YIMBY. Yeah. Absolutely. And so- there's no cohesiveness to all the neighborhoods. Every neighborhood fights for itself. There's not a cohesive city. I believe in the city. I believe cities are our greatest our greatest thing our our world ever has. It's about cities are always about tolerance and the future and innovation. And I want cities to do well. And I think San Francisco should be the greatest city on earth. It should be the example because it's so rich. There's so many, like it's so much money. And it's such, you ever see the movie Elysium? It wasn't a very good movie with with um, Matt Damon and Jodie Foster. Oh, this is where they all like they go all to live, space they, in their super city or whatever? Super city. And they, it could get, so, you know, you go through this machine that if you have a cut, it like heals it in seconds. You have cancer, it goes away. And everyone on earth is like, it's filthy. Earth is filthy. And you, you have certain chits that you maybe you can get some health care. And it's all about healthcare, really. The whole movie's about healthcare. Oh, no, I will Back see there. It. It's great. It's bad. Jodie Foster chews up the scenery a little bit too much, but I, anytime she does that, I love it. It just reminds me of the idea of like, why it doesn't have to be this way. It's sort of like stone soup. What's going on here? Why can't we? And I'm not talking about necessarily not disagreeing, because I think that's important. I don't mind the disagreement, but it's when you're with, say, these housing advocates that are like, no density, no density. Like, don't, I'm like, Maybe I'm being stupid, but rich people always win, it seems to me. And if you don't do density, they're going to renovate all these houses into these beautiful homes and make it impossible to have firefighters and others live here. And so why not talk about like it's really interesting. They don't want to. It's the same thing with homelessness. There was just a fight over chronicling the homeless, like who they are. Because of privacy violations. And I'm like, how can you help them if you can't? Like, there's so many things that are said. You're like, nobody wants to solve the problem. They just want to argue over how to solve the problem. And so, and then the tech people, like, sit in their beautiful, like, Twitter headquarters with their kombucha shakes up. You know what I mean? And they don't, the old days when Wells Fargo and Bank of America were in San Francisco, they were part of city life. They helped the opera. They helped, you know, they were part of city civic duty. And tech people, except for Mark Benioff, who I do admire for this. He's very loud about it. 
they don't have their civic duty. They don't feel a sense. None of these tech people seem to feel a sense of civic duty that they have to help the city they're living in or they don't feel they live in their social media and their and their beautiful headquarters and they don't want to be part of the of the of the city. And I think I could force them to do that. Like they need someone to say, listen, give up the money, people like your it's your duty to fix the city and feel good about it eventually, because I think we all it is like stone, you know, stone soup, yeah. like everybody contribute something. It's interesting because it reminds me earlier in our conversation when you said that it felt to you like the powers wielded by government are not mm-hmm. really that powerful mm-hmm. and that the real powers would be had in building mm-hmm. corporations and mm-hmm. building businesses. So why not build Create a, a business. corporation, build right. a business, make something because that is I, 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 responsive in, to these problems? The only complimentary thing I'll ever say about Donald Trump, I do think he's speaking not just to the rage. I know I, we know all the hillbilly elegy. I get all that was happening all over this country and the anger and this and that. And, and you know, a lot this election is about to me, people who believe in the future and benefit from it and those that don't and who don't benefit from it. And it's pretty simplistic, but it's it's pretty clear that's what's happened, who see the future and where it's going. The future is really problematic on jobs levels and all kinds of stuff. And I think that one thing I do like about Trump is even though most of the things he says are idiotic, like are just cruel and he does point out like what his ability to say what I do like. I like that. I think he says what on the wrong things, but he's like, what do you mean? Like, I don't get that. Like and like, so I think there's no, there's professional politicians. There is a sense around them that they do it the way they've done it for years. No, no, let's not do that. Let's not do it that way. Like, it's interesting right now in Washington over this press corps and having being in the White House and and like. Yeah, Trump trying to move the press. Maybe. I don't – it's not even clear if he is. But Trying to move the press room out of the White House would be the thing I that don't would happen think, yes, potentially. Potentially, but – Which is an old bus wing episode. Right. Yeah, it was with, yeah. with CJ and she wouldn't let it happen. I love that CJ. I'd marry that CJ in a second. We'd all marry CJ. I know. She's the best. So – she was so straight though. So when there, were, there was all this like, oh, oh, with the press and I'm like – What's wrong with thinking about it? Like, you know, like, why not just think about why not? Th- I'm not talking about destroying everything, but why not rethink how we do things? Like, why do we do it this way? Why do we do primaries this way? Why do we do this? This is actually what I enjoy about getting a bit more exposed to tech folk. Yeah. And the thing that I think people get made fun of most in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. is actually the thing that I think Washington could use the most of. Destruction. Disruption. <laughs> no, we have a – in D.C., I think the boundaries of the conversation have gotten very calcified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, to use maybe the most extreme example here, I don't even know if this was true, but there's this idea that Peter Thiel was like recirculating younger blood in himself. And yeah, I think yeah. he's now denied it in a marine He has, interview. but he's interested in the but topic. There, there, Parabiosis. Yeah, there have been studies on this. They mm-hmm. are suggestive. They don't go that far. Mm-hmm. But why not explore it? I agree. There is a lot of mockery of ideas that sound strange. On the other side, the part of this that worries me with mm-hmm. Trump is sometimes the what is a way of ignoring the trade-offs in an idea. Sometimes well, I the think, what is ignoring that— I um, think he has an astonishing lack of historical anything. Like, right. he doesn't understand people. What's interesting also about watching the hair on fire press, like the Washington press court, which is funny to watch them, that he always does something outrageous, always, every five seconds, and every reaction is— Oh, my God, he said something outrageous. Can you believe it? I'm like, yeah, I believed it like seven months ago. Like, you got it? And I was remember being at a party at Tammy Haddad's house. You know, Tammy Haddad. I love Tammy Haddad. And it was all these Washington reporters, like typical, like what I would have become. Like that was, you know what I mean? 
And I had been traveling a lot around the country. This sort of sliding doors moment here. Yes, exactly. And it was like the Washington Post, New York Times. I forget who they were. They were all interchangeable as far as I'm concerned. And we're, they were talking about, this was last summer, two summers, when Trump was just announced, like just, like, and everyone took him not very seriously, right? And I have a lot of relatives in the South. I got, you know, enough. And I talked to a lot of people. And I also saw his appeal. I was like, oh, he's really entertaining. She's really interesting. Let's not ignore him. And I'd heard people talk, like, I like him. Like, I could hear my brother say it and stuff like that. And I said at the party, they were like, oh, Trump is just a circus. And and they were talking about Jeb Bush and who was going to do this and who was going to be the head of this and who was going to. And they were so in that world. And I said, I kind of like Trump for this. I said, he's appealing. Like, why do you why are you dismissing him out of hand? Oh, he's a ridiculous circus. I care. You don't understand politics. I go, uh, I think he's really entertaining and really saying a lot of things that I said, if he's appealing to me, you know, you could feel it like you could feel like, OK, that guy makes a little bit of sense, like in, on certain things, not the mean part, because that's just like there's some he didn't get hugged enough as a child or something happened. That's clear. But some of the stuff he was saying really it appealed to me. And so I was paying a lot of attention. Then I saw it when I was in like Wisconsin and Michigan, Pennsylvania. And they kept saying, oh, Kara, if you only understood how it works in this town. And I was like, well, I don't know, but this guy seems interesting to me. And they literally were like the whole group. It was such a group thing. It's like, oh, you know. And then they go, I never forget this. They go, you know what? The party, the the powers that be won't let him. And I said, what, are they going to shoot him? Is that what happens? Do they take him out back? I said, what do you mean they won't let him? Oh, they won't let him. And I had seen so much disruption in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. Oh, the parties that be won't let you know, this little Instagram takeover photos. And I was like, I've seen it happen a lot. Like, it just happens. When people like something, it just, things can break immediately. I've seen it happen. But these are merged, right? I mean, one reason the powers that be couldn't stop him Mm -hmm. was that a lot of these communication disruptions. Right, but they were all, all these reporters who covered it were like, the powers that be won't let it happen. I'm like, well, unless they have a big fucking machine gun, I don't know how they're going to stop him. Because I think he's I think he's pretty good on the Twitter. And I was like, he's pretty he's got a commu- he's got a direct communication with these. I said, are you watching? Because I was paying a lot of attention to his Twitter account and everything like that, which I'd been fascinated with for years. I thought he was quite good at it, even an evil sort of genius. And what was more interested in the reporters who were not even interested in pursuing, hey, just a minute. And I think the one good thing I had is I'd seen it, things destroyed like newspapers or photography or retail destroyed overnight. It just took a minute for classified Craigslist to occur. And what happened with Craigslist is a good example. In San Francisco, I think they had a $7 million, the Chronicle classified business. I forget the number. For years and years, it was a big moneymaker for them. They made a lot of money. And Craigslist came in, or it was a $70 million business. Craigslist came in, did these free classifies, and it became a $7 million business. Now, it wasn't ever going back to 70. It was going to be seven now. You know what I mean? And Craigslist could make do on that amount of money, but the Chronicle couldn't. And so I was like, it doesn't just destroy. It decimates. It collapses industries. And so you're never going to, you're just never going to, get it back. And I didn't think they got that. I was like, this guy isn't going to hurt. He's not going to change. He's going to decimate politics. This could happen using these social tools. And since none of them used them and none of them were familiar with them and they didn't know how to use Snapchat, all the different things, I was like, do you know how people are communicating? But all us journalists were on Twitter. I mean, that that is one thing. Yes, but they didn't appreciate yeah, his think, use of Twitter. I, I think like, that might be right. But he was so we were the use of it. 
Right. You know what I mean? The right. thing he used Twitter for, I think people get this wrong. It wasn't to communicate with people. Mm-hmm. It was more than anything to drive our coverage. Right. It was to communicate with us. Mark Andreessen once said of about course. his own Twitter account. It's mm-hmm. like having a loudspeaker in every right. newsroom in He's the country. He's another genius at Twitter. Very right? good at Twitter. Yeah. Except when he – is he back on it? I now? don't know. That's just a stunt. Uh, <laughs> Whatever. But – that was something that it's interesting that it took us longer to understand what was happening because it was happening to us. We well, were the ones running around chasing these tweets. I just thought when he was using the Twitter, I was like, whoa, 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 that's smart. That I remember thinking, and I've since talked to a lot of some tech people involved with him, and he was much more deft at using tech tools than anybody else. Do you think social media is good for the world? No. I think it's been weaponized. I think it isn't at this point. And I don't think Facebook is taking responsibility for what it does. Will it become good? Is it something we need to build up norms around or it's just going to get worse? I guess it's going to become a cesspool. Why? Because humanity misbehaves when they can. Unless Facebook and others put up standards and start to say no, the tendency in this system to be able to, you know, you know how people can now say, like text so quickly before you had to call someone or you had to email, even email, it took a minute. Mm Mm-hmm. People now can text you and tell you their every thought. I've had so many problems with lots of people because they immediately have to express every feeling they have immediately. I have this thing in my wallet and it just says stop talking. And so it was interesting that they just – these tools give you an ability to say everything that's on your mind and that's not necessarily such a good thing. That's fascinating. So I think you can't – you have to like – you have to share it. This is what I think of this. Everyone has an opinion. And so – Nobody has an opinion, right? What I do think, though, trusted people will do better and better and better. There will be more. We will coalesce again around trusted sources because it's exhausting to try to manage it yourself. Everywhere you go right now, in in D.C. at least, there are these huge billboards for Facebook Live. Mm -hmm. And they're all they're all about (laughs) they're all about how fast you can begin talking to an audience. Mm -hmm. And I remember looking at it the other day and thinking, I don't know that I want that. Right, right. Well, they're not for you. They're, they're now, they're now yeah. moving away from you to regular people. Yeah. And some of the people, I've noticed it on my Facebook video. It's insane. Like, I'm driving to the, the theater. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, you know what I mean? It's interesting because I think people are, you know, in this world, and it sounds like crazy, but connection is hard. You know what yeah. I mean? Connection is hard. And even though a lot of these things really do help us connect, and I do think on the whole it's been good for the world because – it makes us see things. I think at the same time, it's exhausting and creates more loneliness in a lot of ways because you have to constantly be reacting and you never have time for, you know, you wonder how much our brains are being rewired. You wonder about how, like, I have a hard time reading a book now. Like, I don't know why. I'm trying to, I've been reading this book you might like Mm -hmm. called Deep Work and it's all about this sort of rewiring of the brain. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to spend an hour every morning just reading a book to try to train my brain to be able to focus yeah, on but it's something hard. for a it's while. Hard. I've been reading the Hamilton book by Ron Chernow for six years now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I just can't. I can't do it. I can read things in a little bit. That's not to say I can't read longer things. But And I don't I don't read stupider things. I don't think it necessarily stupefies us because I think smart stuff, like your stuff, well, your stuff is so smart. I Thank read you. all of it. But it's, you know, and your, your videos. But look at you. Like your videos I thought were fantastic because – you had a point of view. That's what you have to have. You've got to have a really informed point of view. And the more informed, the better. But one of the things I think that the reason you resonated is because you were saying something very clearly where everybody else skittered on the edges. Do you like have ways that you limit your social media? No, I should. I, I was thinking about it the other day. I was thinking, I was ta- I'm talking to this guy, Tristan. Harris? Harris. I'm going to do a podcast with him. I really loved that interview in The Atlantic with him. Mm-hmm. I thought that was smart. I'm thinking it's probably I've got to stop because I really think it's sucking up. It's a time suck more than anything. And I, I got to be more thoughtful. I just wonder in the long term, 
I take some of the fake news stuff and, and some of the fights that are happening as a kind of sentiment analysis mm -hmm. on, on social media. The reason people are so into this question is because mm -hmm. they feel shitty about the informational environment they mm -hmm. now occupy. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I see how any of it really changes, but long term, I think places like Facebook and particularly Twitter, mm -hmm. it's not going to work for everybody My every time they turn them on to like have a shot of cortisol. Yeah, no, I think it does. It does. It, it's it's an addictive personality. I think it's, it's addictive, but it's making people feel bad. Yes, but they but younger people are not doing cigarettes My, calm my you kids, down. My, but I they're know. not cool kids and you yes. shouldn't do them. My kids don't use those. It's interesting. They don't use Twitter or Facebook. They use Instagram and Instagram is the happiest place on the internet. Exactly. And Snapchat. They like that better, and it's quieter. It's quieter. Yeah. And it's interesting, and I don't think they're going to pull into it. It's, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but you definitely – there is a sense you, that you have to, like, stop. It's definitely addictive. I'm not an addictive personality, and I feel addicted to it. And so I have controlled myself. You know, you can control yourself, but it is hard because, you know, I was with my son the other day, and he was looking at something on his phone. I said, put down your phone. Like, put down – we're talking right now. Like, put down your phone, and he's like – but mom, just just one more thing. I'm just looking at one more thing. And I said, there's always one more thing, Louie, always. There's nothing. And it's so endlessly entertaining and fantastic that it's hard not to be interested in it, right? So, and it's not as if all I of it's I feel much stupid. more addicted than I feel entertained. Really? Some of it's great. Some no. of it is amazing. But I find myself addicted to things that at least as often as they make me feel good, they make me feel bad. Yep. Like my email. Mm -hmm. The other email. day I opened up my email. I think texting. I'm just... Before the end of the night, right before I went to bed. And there's just an email in there that upset me. And it's like, why did I do that? I wasn't here to respond to emails. I was sitting in bed. Why did my fingers automatically mm -hmm. do that? That's yeah, the kind you of go thing for, that... You look for your phone, right? You're, you're somewhere and you like want go to grab your phone. And I do think about that. I was I have the worst story of all. I had my BlackBerry in my hand when my child was born because I was texting Walt. I was texting Walt. I was like nine centimeters, whatever the centimeters was. And, and I had an emergency C-section and they it was in my hand when I got a shot. Oh, I that really changes there. the nature of that story when, yeah. Yeah, when you are the one. Yeah, exactly. But I was child. texting, you know, I was texting and it was in the hand and I forgot it was there when they put the, my hand became numb. So I didn't feel it. Wheeled into the room and and it's there. And my brother's the anesthesia, the head of anesthesia at this hospital. And so I know all the anesthesiologists or they know me. And this doctor is like, Carrie, you really have to stop. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I'm having a baby. What are you talking about? I'm not stopping. And it was in my hand. And so I had to wrap it up because they didn't, couldn't be dirty. You know what I mean? So I oh, had wow. plastic around it and it was buzzing, you know, during it was mm -mm, I couldn't really could hear it. Because my hand was numb. And so it was, I was like, oh, something is wrong with me. But I thought it was funny. Like, I thought this would make a great commercial. But the same thing, you do reach for the phone. It's like your best relationship yeah. were, ever. Were you at the offsite recently? No, I didn't go. Yeah, you went there. I never so, go to your big talk fest, the Vox Media. The Vox Media talk God, fest. God, you people like to talk. Oh, love talking. Yeah. Um, but Melissa I'd and I have watch, been like, handing TV. our phones to the other one during mm -hmm. the sessions. Because, like, if you don't have your phone. Right. You can't use it. it. You should collect them. You should collect you them. Should, it's yeah. hard. I find it hard. I did that at a recent staff event. I put them all in the middle of the table. And I can tell you, I was like sweating. It was like, you know, Oh, I DTs. feel so much better. Mm -hmm. I've started asking if I'm going out with my wife, mm -hmm. if she can just be the one who brings her phone. Yeah. Because if I've I don't better. have it, it really changes. Right. I do not feel the right. same pull. But right. if it is in my pocket, yeah. Yeah. it is almost a physical thing. Although sometimes thing. I do have a job where I do have to hear from people. Like it does matter. Like if something's happening, like news and stuff like I that. I think that's really, I, I think that's true. I also think it is a – that can be a very toxic mindset to – Absolutely. Because yeah. it – well, it's true that sometimes that happens. We're in the news business. We are. But 
to spend 100% of your I life agree. with a thing in order for the, like, the 1% of times that's true. Because I can always get to something, right? Yes. It's like I'm not that far from my yeah. home. Yeah, but happens, it's so. sometimes, you know. It, but also I, you're more of a real reporter now than Yes, I exactly. I, and like, so I do have to, and I, you know, Peter Kafka has to be heard right when he calls me, like kind right. of thing. Like he, he's I, texting I, me right now. All right, so um, speaking of this, what are what are three books that you would all right, recommend to the audience? All right, this is the last part. Yeah. I'll tell you what I'm reading now, and you'll be surprised or listening to. I'm doing a lot of listening, not reading. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading the Hamilton book for six years now, and I like it. I've liked it for years. I am reading the new Jhumpa Lahari book, and I'm blanking on the name. I love Jhumpa Lahari. Yeah. Beautiful writer. And I like the first one that she did. I thought it was my favorite. I'm blanking on the name. Any, anything by Jhumpa Lahari. Interpretive Maladies? Interpretive Maladies. Yeah. Um, I like all her books, honestly. There's just nothing I, I don't like that she writes. I did listen to Hillbilly Elegy. Which, he's on the podcast. Yes, he's great. And I, I enjoyed listening to it. I don't mm-hmm. think I would have enjoyed reading it as much. What makes a book that you like listening to? Because I'm hearing in his voice, mm-hmm. in his voice, and he, you can hear his life. I like it's a conversation mm-hmm. in the same way. So I'm enjoying that. And I'm of all things, I'm, I'm listening to Megyn Kelly's book. And I know she's gotten pilloried, but I love the book. I think it's great. I'm having a really— What's her book called? It's called Settle for More. It's mm. one of those, like, lady empowerment ideas. She's very interesting, and she goes there on a lot of stuff, which I'm surprised. I was surprised that, you know, she went there. The other book I'm that's on my thing is Being Mortal. Oh, that book is great by Togawande. Yeah. I thought I, I have just started it, and the I'm very interested in these life extension things recently. I'm thinking of writing a book myself about it. And the other one that I just finished with, When Air Becomes Breath, another one I heard and that didn't— did not read. I heard because I wanted to hear. It wasn't him, but it was a voice that sounded like he would sound. I thought that the was the book by the doctor who doctor died? who died. Yeah, I thought it was very good. It was really. Good. I liked that a lot. I read mostly nonfiction. I should read more fiction. I don't read fiction. I yeah, don't I don't read much fiction either. I like nonfiction. And then I want to read. There's like a nine books I want to read, um, but I haven't gotten to it. What's one favorite book from your childhood? A Wrinkle in Time. Oh, that's a great book. And Time and Again. I like all time travel. Stories. Every story that's a time travel story, I love. But Time and Again was one, and what's his name? Jules Verne. I love mm-hmm. Jules Verne, The Time Machine. I, that's the one thing. But Wrinkle in Time is my favorite. They just came out with a, an illustrated book of that. Alison Bechdel's Fun Home and the accompanying book, Are You My Mother, I think was great. I love illustrated novels. And I think that one of the things I like to look for is just a good story, like a good tale, a good story. So I really, Wrinkle, I don't know why I love Wrinkle in Time so much, but it was a really important book. I read it again and again, and I I don't know what it is about it, but I love it. Kara Swisher, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you to Kara. I thought that was just great. I hope you did too. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back next week. 